This episode of Converge with my guest, David Trotter, is sponsored by Go, the Converge Summit. Go is our annual gathering for creatives looking to grow their business. How much are you leaving on the table? For more information, check out ConvergeSummit.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. One of my favorite things about creating this podcast, Converge, the business of creativity, is we get to celebrate people who make things and then make value from those things. And then often that comes in the form of generating money, of monetizing their creations. And my guest is very good at doing that kind of thing. He's an entrepreneur in many different areas of life. But today's conversation is going to focus on his work as a filmmaker. David Trotter has been an entrepreneur and a, a meaning maker, a creator, uh, for years, both in for-profit and non-profit. But in today's conversation, as we talk about his film, In Plain Sight, not only will it bring to light uh, an important concept and idea and truth in, in our, uh, our Western civilization, but I also think it might invite you to think about how you're leveraging your creativity for more than just making a buck. When you see how an average person can do something that's extraordinary, that display is designed to motivate people to ask the question, what can I do? I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. David Trotter, welcome to Converge. Thanks so much, Dane. It's an honor to be, to be with you. We have known each other for a while now. Uh, we met as colleagues as photographers, although I guess we met before that through common friends here in Southern California and uh, our work in faith communities and that sort of thing. But in recent years, it's been fun to watch you really blossom in creating the kinds of output that is not only meaningful for you as a creative individual, but seems to be moving a lot of people. And lately, the other you know, a couple of weeks ago, we ran into each other and we were talking specifically about your new film, In Plain Sight. And I'm wondering if you could just share in a few moments a little of your journey that got you to get into filmmaking. And then second, tell us a little bit about, about In Plain Sight. Absolutely. I had done uh, quite a bit of work in front of the camera, actually, as a, a pastor um, for a whole year. I actually gave a sermon via video, and we shot it in three to four different locations based on the passage that we were speaking on that particular Sunday. And so I kind of just got that bug in me, and I, I love being in front of the camera, behind the camera, thinking about how to create uh, communication resources that inspire people and motivate people to take action in whatever way. And so several years ago, out of that passion, I had an equal passion for orphans in India. I'd been to India six or seven times and taken my family. And so I was talking to a buddy and we were trying to figure out ways to help people in America become more aware of the issue of the 31 million orphans in the nation of India. And so we said, what if we made a documentary? And man, that would be amazing. I said, have you ever created one? He's like, no, I haven't either. 
let's do it. You know, who, who cares? Let's figure it out. And so we ended up hiring a cinematographer that was a, a friend of his and created the film. And it was just an amazing experience. We actually showed up in India with the idea that if there really are 31 million orphans in the nation of India, according to UNICEF, They've got to be living in groups or tribes or families in some way. And so we showed up with no plan other than we had a cinematographer, we had a translator, and we were just going to look for orphans to hang out with. It was just crazy. And we stumbled across 25 orphans living alongside this railway in southern India. And we hung out with them for two weeks, and we documented their life. And the process was very intense. The whole process of from raising the money to putting the story together after the fact to producing it. And then we ended up getting picked up by a distribution company called Word Films. And that process went very well. And I just went back to them about a year ago and said, hey, if I wanted to do a film on sex trafficking in the United States, would you distribute it? And they said yes. And so that led me to... The whole process of uh, doing a second documentary. Why why sex trafficking as a topic? I mean, I get the whole orphan thing and I get what you're up to overseas, but how did you land on that topic in particular? You know, I had seen sex trafficking in India in red light districts where I have had my picture taken and stood next to what we would call a pimp or a trafficker who owns the women and literally they're not moving away. He owns them. I have been in um, Bangkok, Thailand and seen it, you know, flagrantly on the streets, people being sold. And um, even on a business trip in China, uh, we went to a uh, like an underground karaoke and they paraded in 15 women um, and said, pick one. And I was I was just shocked. I said, um, no, I'm you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I I I. I I'm fine by myself. And they all started, the business guys from there started laughing at me and said, oh, we know what you want. You want a little boy. And you know, I was just mortified at that point. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. Uh, and so as I saw this in those three countries, I then began to hear news stories about sex trafficking happening in the United States. And I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, there's no way that that's happening here. And Maybe if it is happening, maybe people are being shipped in from Asia or Mexico. And I just began to learn more and more about the issue. And it captured my heart because the people that are involved, the the, the victims are just vulnerable and broken and really have no voice. And so it captured me to want to somehow be a voice for them. On a different trip, you and I were together on this, but I, I've traveled to India as well and I remember I had an eight-year-old daughter at the time. She's now a little older now, but I remember a particular picture of a, a little girl that I took a photograph of while I was there, and uh, she was one of many, just out in the street playing with other kids, and then it becoming evident to me, almost like somebody turning a dimmer light up, that this person, not only was she being trafficked, but she had been part of a multi-generation, like her mother, her mother's mother, uh, if she grew up in her kids, her kids. And that was just kind of built into the culture there. And then I made the association, as many people do who travel, like, oh, my gosh, if that was my daughter, just devastated at the idea. And then and then to, to go for I've not had the experience you're describing of being around the, the cliche business person going on sex trade vacations. Uh, 
but the, that's a reality in our world these days. And when, I, when I've been around the work of folks like International Justice Mission and seen kind of footage of, of sting operations and, and trying to interrupt that, man, it just feels so overwhelming. And as you were in the process of creating uh, this film and, and really illuminating the fact that this is not just an international issue, this is a domestic issue, this is a human issue, how, how did you deal with the, the, just the sheer volume of data and the reality that these are human beings um, and not get just crushed by it? Well, one of the unique aspects of our film was that we didn't want to create a film that was depressing because the first film we created, I created, it was totally depressing about the orphans. And I found that I really didn't motivate people um, to take action. And so I committed with the second film to make it hopeful and uh, inspiring in some way. And so I watched a lot of the sex trafficking documentaries and almost every one of them is depressing. There's very little hope. It just creates fear and anxiety and some of them are even titillating. And so we wanted to create something that was full of hope. And so we ended up through Word Films getting connected to an organization called Hope for Justice. And they have a network of aftercare homes throughout the United States. And so I started to say, man, what would it be like if we were able to actually go to those aftercare homes, talk to the women who founded them, hear why they founded them, hear what these aftercare homes do, and then actually hear stories from survivors. And so we began to do that. We shot the film in six different cities, Nashville, Baltimore, Little Rock, Sacramento, Dallas, and uh, Houston. And the first uh, location where we shot survivors was in Baltimore. And we walked into this really huge home that had been totally uh, dilapidated and they bought it and turned it into this amazing aftercare home. And we were invited before we really had started shooting or do anything to sit down with the women who were living in the home and have um, pizza for dinner. And I have chills just talking about it right now because I'm sitting down with women who within the last few months have come out of something that I can't even fathom at that moment. And we're just connecting, getting to know each other. And as I interviewed survivor after survivor there in the beginning, it was so overwhelming that you know, our team, we just had to debrief after every um, day of interviewing and process and go, man, how is that even possible? And, you know, it's just, this is just, it, it was, it's just overwhelming. It really is. And we, we process with friends. I found that when I came back from shooting a trip, it would take me um, three or four days to be able to just kind of come back to life that I was still processing it. And, um, it, we're just talking to friends and family and, and processing and connecting about it through that processing. It allowed me to kind of be able to assimilate it and, um, begin to recognize that this is, it's not an isolated situation in those cities that I went to, you know, it's, it's in my own town. It really is. The creative process it's so immersive. I mean, folks who, who make stuff, they, they throw themselves into it. And, and what you're describing, it, it makes sense to me. And, and given the topic at hand, I can see why it would also have that, that impact. But I'm, 
I'm thrilled that you you also made the decision to think about the audience, not just you as a creative to kind of express, because like you said, it was so much of that. I think you come out of that with just a sense of hopelessness, but then to decide, no, I'm going to concern myself with the audience and make sure that this is palatable, accessible. People will want to see this film. It seems like that was your motivation. Is is that close to home or, or how much were you conscious to your audience? A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. If there are plenty of documentaries that you can watch that will tell the issue of trafficking and quote statistics and help you understand the darkness of it and even how, you know, maybe make it a little sexy, but we wanted to go, okay, this is a real issue. A lot of our culture still has not come to grips that this is happening in their own town. So we need to come to the table, not assuming that the viewer knows anything. So we do educate the viewer on the issue. We educate them not only through statistics, but we educate them through the actual stories of victims or survivors. They walk you through from the beginning, which is these girls aren't just snatched off the street like taken or something or out of a bedroom. That's rarely happens. It begins with a um, girl or boy who finds themselves uh, very vulnerable in life in some way. They don't have a stable home environment. Almost 100% of sex trafficking victims have been sexually molested in some way as a child. Um, it breaks down a barrier of what's um, normative for them. And so we educate people in the film, but we've got to motivate people to see how they can take action. You know, as with any documentary, things unfold and, and you start to go, okay, all right, here's the story. Here's what's happening. And the story that emerged for us is there are these six women that came face to face with the issue midway through in life. This is not like they um, started out with a master's in social work or family therapy or something like that. These are all different types of women. They came face to face with the issue and then they did something about it. And in five out of the six cases, they started an aftercare home. And the, the sixth woman is actually the U.S. Director of Hope for Justice, and they're in the process of starting an aftercare home in Nashville. And so when you see how an average person can do something that's extraordinary, that display is designed to motivate people to ask the question, what can I do? And it, you may not start an aftercare home. Very few people will. That's a huge undertaking. and um, But we can all do something. And so even as filmmakers, we didn't have the narrator turn and tell the audience what they needed to do. We allowed those six abolitionists, those six women, to speak from their own heart of what how they would encourage people to take action. And so then it feels like it's flowing out of the story as opposed to coming from more of a heavy-handed place. In our friendship, I... I not only have I made this observation, but I have, we have mutual friends who've told me like, oh, you remind me of Trotter. Oh man. And so I take it as such an affirmation built into their, their comment though, is that they see a commonality of being zealous, <laughs> getting after things in pretty, sometimes irreverent, sometimes just after it creatively. And I'm curious in this case, when, when it feels like the stakes are so high and there's a sense of urgency how did you bridle that sense of like wanting to like knock somebody over the head with, look, you need to know this and you need to go do something about this right now, but to resist that and let the audience find their way to what their response will be. Does that make sense as a question given our personalities? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think part of it is I came into this process and still feel like 
I am holding a position of extreme humility and ignorance. I am an outsider to this movement or issue. And I look at these six women and all of their staff and in the broader movement of hundreds of organizations that are popping up nationwide to combat this issue. I I feel like I am trying to just serve this movement, these people. I'm not trying to create another organization for people to rally around me or what I'm doing. I'm trying to create a resource that would be helpful for the broader conversation and to motivate our nation as a whole. So when I come from that place of humility to go, man, I'm just trying to give other people a voice and share their their passion, their heart, then it feels that feels really authentic because I'm not trying to rally people based on my passion or my uh, knowledge or my experience because I may have passion, but it, it purely flows out of the fact that I'm around these people that are doing the work day in and day out. And they're the ones who are the heroes. They're the ones who are the abolitionists that are just doing amazing things. And um, when I stay in that place of humility and feel like I'm serving them, then it feels very genuine. It feels like my passion's still there, but I'm not, it's not unbridled. The uh, democratization of creativity, the ability for not having to be picked to participate, like for you and your buddy to come up with the idea of like, hey, let's make a movie <laughs> and and do that deal on the orphans. And then now uh, in this topic, and I'm guessing for future things, I'm in conversations all the time, it seems, around kind of two poles to this notion of everyone having access to the ability to create, that some people feel like that's a problem uh, because now everyone can make a movie. And then the other hand, we have people who say, like, this is the best news since sliced bread. Everyone gets to make a movie, despite the fact that not every movie is great. How do you view this kind of flattening of the creative process that everyone gets to play? I love it. I love it because I benefit from it, of course. And I'm able to express myself and rally people around messages that I want to communicate. Um, I remember about seven years ago... I wrote my first book, small book, and it was a faith-based inspirational book. And I sent it out to quite a few publishers, like probably 15. Turned down, turned down, turned down, turned down. One, I got close and it went nowhere. And then I began to discover a lot of the tools that you're talking about. And I am a self-taught Photographer, videographer, graphic designer, web developer, web designer, book layout, you know, you name it, I'll try it. And I just began to produce those things myself and use the resources online such as CreateSpace. And what I I realize through my own work and the work that I see, the cream will rise to the top. So if my resource is not the greatest resource, but yet it helps 100 people, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, if somebody else's, like I've got a friend, uh, a woman, she's middle-aged, she's from Romania, and she actually published a couple of books in Romania through a traditional publisher. She came to the United States. She's been here quite a few years. She has a, a desire to write children's books. Well, I hooked her up with a an illustrator, 
And I laid out the whole thing for her first book. She gets that book back from CreateSpace. She is blown away. In the last year, she has produced, I think, like 12 books that are all now available on Amazon with her own illustrations, her own writing. Is it that great? You know what? I think she's living out her passion. Is it something that's going to be produced and put in Barnes & Noble? Probably not at this level. But she's living out her passion, and there are tons of kids that love her books. And so those kids are benefiting from her ability to be able to express herself and create resources. Um, So I I, I love it. I think that ultimately the cream rises to the top. And and for me and the resources that I create, I just keep working harder and harder to make them not only uh, motivating to people, but also something that's beautiful or attractive and that they would want to then pass on to their friend. Before we started the conversation, we've actually had this conversation a couple times now. You talked a little bit about how you take all of these skill sets and make them viable. And you, you have this kind of bucket system on how you, you set your life up uh, and really setting the stage so that you can do these kinds of passion projects along with doing the kinds of projects that you know feed your family. So talk a little bit about your, your bucket system and how you organize the work that you do. Well, six years ago, I transitioned out of full-time ministry work. And so I began to try to figure out how do I reinvent myself and see the world in a different way. I didn't grow up in an entrepreneurial home. I grew up in a home where my dad worked for the federal government and my mom worked for uh, banks in an assistant role, administrative role. It was very traditional and stable. And although um, I had tried that in some corporate jobs early on, right out of college, I knew that if I went and got a job six years ago, it was going to kill me. And my wife was incredibly supportive. And so uh, for me right now, I see my life in three buckets. One bucket is how am I making money right now? I have a company called 8-Track Studios. Uh, it is a marketing business. I am the only employee. Uh, we I used to have employees and I just found that it was too cumbersome and the overhead was too great. And so I either do the work myself or I contract it out. I do all kinds of marketing anybody needs, including ghostwriting. The second bucket is how do I create some sort of income that would be ongoing um, and maybe even a lot more money that I could make then with my marketing business. And so I have tried a number of things over the last few years. And right now I have another thing that I'm working on uh, with a business partner and we'll see if it flies. The third bucket is how am I making a difference in the world? more in a social justice context. And that has been through the work of these films and the uh, you know accompanying resources that surround them. Dane, I have found that if I have something going on in my life in each one of those three buckets at the same time, I feel incredibly fulfilled. I'm bringing in money. I'm dreaming about the future through something that could make an incredible amount of money or be recurring income. And then I'm making a difference in a world in the world in a very tangible way with my gifts. And all of my gifts are used in those three buckets from creativity to strategy to seeing things into the future, uh, public speaking, filmmaking, whatever it might be. I just use all those are just tools in order to live out my life in these three buckets. I wish 
this can could come off incredibly egotistical. I don't feel like I'm this incredible expert in any one of these areas, but I'm kind of halfway decent in all of them. And so it makes it really hard to focus on one thing. I wish I was just good at one thing. Like I'm a web developer and that's what I do. And I'm really good at it. And I just develop websites and I create these amazing, I can't do it. You know, I've got all these, these different skills and gifts and passions. And so I try to just use them all in order to create things. Well, I don't think you're alone. I think a lot of us are kind of border dwellers wandering around the edge of skill sets and are actually looking for ways to integrate them. And I, I love how you frame that out. And I, I love what you've done with In Plain Sight. And I know a lot of folks are going to want to find out more about it, get access to it. How, what's the best way for folks to, to see that work? The film, more information, they can get it on the website, which is inplainsightfilm.com. And then ultimately, it'll be on Netflix in late 2015. Awesome. And, uh, and of course, if they want to check out the trailer and that sort of thing, they can go to inplainsightfilm.com. Exactly. Awesome. David Trotter, thank you so much. Thanks for being my friend. Thanks for all that you do for the, the world and, uh, and your creativity and your family. And um, thanks for being on Converge. Thanks so much, Dane. This was episode 037 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. ConvergePodcast.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, as well as Go, our unconference for creatives looking to grow their business. Music today provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at acreative.co for audio production. And a special thanks to David for being with us. In fact, check out his film, In Plain Sight, at InPlainSightFilm.com. Finally, if you haven't shared an episode of Converge with a friend, would you? Consider one person who you think would benefit from my conversations with Seth Godin, Chris Gillibo, Ann Hanley, and many, many others. And invite them to join in. You caring enough to do that sort of thing is a nod to us that we're doing something right and is a really big deal. So, thanks. That's it for now. I'm Dean Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.